Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you. With professional-grade industrial supplies, count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger For the ones who get it done. The Spectator Australia is a weekly delight for anyone who loves insightful analysis, contentious opinion, and hard-hitting comment. With the finest writing on current affairs, politics, the arts, books and life, you'll read regular columnists who delight, provoke and amuse, and editorial features of incredible breadth and depth. There is no party line to which its writers abound. Originality of thought and elegance of expression are the sole editorial constraints. A digital subscription is just $16.99 a month and you get your first month free. Sign up today at spectator.com.au forward slash join. G'day and welcome to Australiana from The Spectator Australia, a series of conversations on Australian politics and life. I'm Will Kingston. In the past, politicians would write long, boring tomes to promote their philosophy if they were on the way up or to define their legacy if they were on the way down. Of course, some politicians still do this. When Ron DeSantis recently launched his new book, he may as well have put up a big sign in flashing neon lights saying, what a great president I would be. From what I can tell, my guest today likes to do things a little differently. If you go onto South Australian Senator Alex Antic's Instagram account, you'll get a de facto manifesto delivered in bite-sized snippets from the man himself. In the sea of bland mediocrity that is Australian politics, these clips are a blast of fresh air. Alex says the things we are all thinking but perhaps too afraid to say. His recent cry of, stop welcoming me to my own country, in one such viral clip, was met with sighs of relief from sensible people everywhere, accompanied by a quiet nod that indicated that this guy gets it. Alex, welcome to Australiana. Thanks, Will. Thank you very much for that nice intro. Let's start with that welcome to country ritual. Some people would just say it's a nice gesture. What's the harm? What's your response to that? Well, I mean, I think it probably started out that way. I mean, we hear these stories and I don't really seem to be ever to pinpoint exactly where it started, but it seems to go back to a few decades back when uh, some activists, and I'm told, uh, even the likes of Ernie Dingo, I'm told, were, were looking for, you know, something nice to do and, you know, something nice to say before a sporting event. Now, that's, I, you know, so be it. I think the thing that's really sticking in people's throat, though, is the amount of times we hear this and the manner in which I think it's been deflated by just the constant repetition it sort of gets to a point where you, you do have to say, well, look, you know, at least half of the side of my family has been here for five, six generations, probably the same with you, the other half only one. But in any event, we all call Australia home. And why are we being welcomed to our own country anymore? And why are we hearing it seven times a day? I mean, to give you an example, and this goes back almost a decade, this goes to show how long this has been going on. I, I 
um, sat on the Adelaide City Council where we would often do a series of standing committees and we'd do all four in one night. We'd, we'd hear it, you know, something like four times in two hours, this Welcome to Country. And it, I mean, it really, it dawned on me then that this was just being used and abused by, you know, inner city white people in order to make themselves feel less guilty. So I, I just think, you know, in one sense, there's got to be an end to this. There's got to be a way in which we we sort of roll the clock back and say, listen, we're all Australians and you know, we, we've got to give this up. It sort of comes back to the issue about when have we actually reconciled? You know, how often are we going to have to keep going through things like this, not just this? I mean, it's just a little emblematic issue. It doesn't really, you know, affect much. But I think it's the point. The point is that it, in my mind, it demeans um, people who've been here for generations. Uh, I, I don't, and that's the point. That was the whole point of the statement. I don't want to be welcome to my own country anymore. You mentioned there that this is a little emblematic thing. And I think that's a really important observation, because I think that's something that people are really frustrated by, is that this is a symbolic gesture in a long line of symbolic gestures in Indigenous affairs. I think a lot of people would say that that Kevin Rudd's apology made people feel warm and fuzzy. It didn't actually improve the quality of life of, of Indigenous people. Why are so many politicians quick to default to symbolic gestures over substantive changes in this area? I think the answer to that is because politicians don't like being yelled at by Twitter and by the ABC. And uh, if you take a step backwards and you actually look at what's happened, Aussies are pretty pragmatic, pretty sensible, pretty common sense people. But it, it almost feels like over the last 20 or 30 years, a, a dark cloud of control has, has sort of drawn on top of people to the point where people are frightened to say what they think for fear of being called one of these isms. You know, So people won't mm. say, I don't want that welcome to country ceremony for fe- fear of being called a racist. They might say, you know, I, I believe women's sport is for women, but they don't want to be a, a transphobe, transphobic, you know, whatever it might be. And I think people are just naturally, because they don't want to live their life in conflict, just just worried about getting yelled at. And I think in many time, many cases, worrying unnecessarily, because I think most people, most Aussies are pretty pragmatic, very open-minded. This, this nonsense that the left in this country and many of the institutions will tell us that we're a systemically racist country is just absolute crap. Will it's crap. It's it's we are not a systemically racist country. That's just a construct uh, of the hardcore left. I mean, these people are the radicals, right? We're, we're, we're Aussies mainly just want to go about their day to day life. So I, I think that's where it comes from. People just simply don't want to be, you know, taken to task for just speaking their mind, and that doesn't mean. You know, you you are you know have a license to say all sorts of terrible things, but I, I, Aussies, I think, generally just are acting in best interests of all of their fellow Aussies most of the time. Um, this is a control mechanism um, that is that is being used very effectively, and I don't think politicians want to take it on any more than the person who going to a dinner party or the pub or anything else want to take these on. And in the meantime, as you quite rightly say, all the big issues, the genuine issues, the voice, by the way, is the great example of this. I mean, this is just, you know, sort of symbolism really over any form of practical help for struggling Indigenous communities. And, uh, you know, that, that is a real shame. I, 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 it, the left do this well. It's gesture politics is what it is. You mentioned the voice. Why should people vote no? Because, uh, I mean, I, there's a lot of detail that's to come. That's the first thing. But the basic line is the same same reason they should have voted no any time. I mean, I've been talking about this for, for 18 months because it'll divide Australians unnecessarily. What we're being proposed is something ultimately that could put a line down the middle of Australian society. We, we have two, two different classes. I mean, I, I, I go to Australian Parliament and sit in that Senate chamber because it says Australian at the bottom of my passports. So does Jacinta Price. 
you know, so, so does, uh, you know, uh, uh, Lydia Thorpe. I mean, we all go there because we're Australians. And so we can get into the detail about, uh, you know, the excess spending, the excess costs, I guess the, the sort of the problems with actually getting the referendum up and fairly and all those sorts of things. But the basic bottom line is it's not racist to vote no. It never will be. And we don't want to divide Australians uh, in this manner. I would suggest, Alex, that a lot of the Liberal Party base, if not most of the Liberal Party base, reached that principal position that you've just articulated in about 15 seconds. Yeah, I reckon you were so. One of, you were one of those people. Why did it take so long for your fellow Liberal Party members, party members, I should say, to get their act together? Well, I don't think it's unreasonable. I mean, I, I, I did. I, I, you know, I made the point a long time ago publicly that I, I had no intention of supporting this regardless. And and then that was exactly for that reason, because it's, it's divisive. And I, I couldn't personally see any detail that could be given to me which would change my mind on that. I, you know, I, I just don't see how that was the case. Having said that, I think it's perfectly reasonable for the party itself, you know, for, for, for the opposition leader, Peter Dutton, uh, to do that. I mean, I, I think it's, it's probably, it's probably uh, you know, sensible politics to hear more detail of what's being proposed before you come to a position. So I don't, I don't, have any, don't take any issue with that at all. And I'm, I'm very glad that that position has been reached because uh, I, this is a really important turning point in Australian history, I think. I mean, I, I, I think you might have seen what has happened in Queensland over the last few days with this treaty proposal being rolled out. If you want to see the future of this country, uh, should this referendum get up, that's what it starts to look like. Treaty proposals and ultimately even the further dividing of this country through the uh, uh, you know creation of sovereign nations in some format. Now, what that looks like, I can't tell you, but ultimately, I don't think anyone wants to see any more division in this country. And the best way to ensure that is to vote no to the voice. Well, if, if uh, I imagine if someone was on the yes side that they would say, well, that's not the case. This is just a modest change to give Indigenous people a say in the issues that matter to them. How do you respond to that line of thinking? Yeah, we, we hear that. It's funny, that word comes up a lot at the moment in the Senate chamber. The Labor front bench are using it all the time for every change they want to make, which is far from modest. It's always characterised as modest. Uh, this is about as far from modest uh, as it as anything ever could possibly be. This ultimately has all the prospects of changing the fabric of the Australian nation in ways we can't even imagine yet. So I, I don't uh, I don't see any of this as being modest. And by the way, we, we see this all the time. Um, this is what so-called, let's call it progressive politics. I really don't like that word, but let's call it that for the time being. It's like slicing the salami. Uh, you know, every time we are given a modest proposal, it's a modest slice of the salami, we find that there's another one coming after that and another one coming after that and another one coming after that. It doesn't matter. You pick your issue and that applies. Let's take the issue of uh, same-sex marriage, you know, we're we're now seven or eight years down the down the line from that, I think, and um, we're now debating the issues of uh, for gender bathrooms and uh, and uh, women playing women's sport, and you name it. That th- those issues continue to be pressed when we we're all told that you know really all that people wanted the uh, rainbow activists, all they wanted was this one issue. So, so you uh, see you see a link between those two things. Yeah, look, I, I think that 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 uh, that activism has has uh, progressed now, and I think that that the one thing the progressive side of politics do is continue to take ground and continue to move the dial. That's my frustration with conservative politics in this country: is we are, I believe, too often waving the white flag when we need to be holding the line, if not pushing back in the opposite direction. There's nothing 
that anyone should feel embarrassed about, about, uh, you know, believing in their country, believing in the models that have worked. I mean, you know, you said the other day, you don't have to be a person that, that loves everything about King Charles to be somebody that respects the con- constitutional monarchy in this country. And I, I think it's uh, it's never been more important to support that model because let's have a look at what a republic would look like in 2023. It would look pretty bad. So, yeah, I, I think I think it's about holding the line. I think conservative politics in 2023 has got a muscle up because people out there are with us. They are um, ready for uh, a bit of pushback and holding the line at a very minimum. We'll get to the conservative side of politics in Australia in a second. Before before we do, you mentioned that it's you're not a racist if you vote no, and it points to this really worrying part of the debate where I think a lot of people on the yes side and some people on the no side as well are reflexively smearing anyone who disagrees with them as hateful, ignorant racists. What do you think this this says about political debate in this country today? I think it's probably never been more polarised, really. I think we're seeing this all over the West. You see it in the United States, don't you, where you've got almost tribal-like behaviour. I have to say, one of the things that really stood out was the manner in which the left um, dealt with COVID. You know, you can see the the blind adherence to the narrative coming out from some of these arguments. You had people that once were very anti-corporation, being very pro-big pharma. You had people that were, uh, you know, I suppose... Uh, you know, more about workers' rights becoming very pro-mandate. And you can only think you can, the only thing you can put that down to is the, the, um, the influence of social media, of the media cycle, the news cycle, to push a narrative and to have people stick to those lines without any room for veering off course. And I think we are seeing, and I, I, look, I don't know. I mean, that's a, that's a task for a, a more apt political scientist than myself. But I, I, I suspect that a lot of this is the, the influence of social media and pushing people into their own corners, if you like, all over the West. And, you know, I, I suspect that your um, social media um, following and uh, mine is, is probably pretty similar, but it might be very different to uh, people that would sit on the other side of the political spectrum. And, you know, I think probably more than ever where not seeing media with a, with a sort of a common ground, which ultimately is, I think, dividing us even further. I think, you know, we, we you know, I, I sometimes say, I don't, I don't know that it's really the case, maybe I'm naive, but I don't know that it's really the case that anyone enters parliament with a view of doing wrong, doing evil. And that applies to, you know, people that stand for Labor and the Greens. We just see the world a different way. But you wouldn't know that if you saw the, uh, you know, the kind of the, the tenor of the debate anymore. You know, every, every side thinks the other one's got devil horns on. Um, and I'm, I'm just, you know, I, I don't know um, what we do to fix that except to say that, uh, you know, I think social media has had a, has had a massive, uh, massive input to that. Yeah, it is interesting. I've spoken about this phenomena with several people on this podcast and it's, it's the phenomena of turning sport, or politics into sport. You yeah. no longer look at a policy or an issue on its merits and think about, well, what are my values and then how does that influence how I think about this policy? You go, do the Liberal Party or do the Republicans or do the Tories support this policy? And then I retrofit my values to to, to fit that. It's a really worrying thing. It gets me thinking about a, a question on this. Is there a position or a policy that you can think of where you are at odds with, I guess, either a traditional conservative position or at odds with most of your, for want of a better word, teammates on the Liberal side of the party? Uh, well, look, I, I guess uh, some of the, the, the COVID measures were probably the closest thing I've come to in recent times. I, I you know, I, I really, 
I, I really do think that the approach taken all over the country was uh, illiberal in many cases. And, and you know, I mean, if you look at the, the Liberal Party, it's, a, I think, a very tried and trusted and very effective political force, which is the combination of um, liberalism and conservatism. In the case of forcing people to choose between their job and an untested medical procedure, I can't think of anything more illiberal and less conservative than <laughs> than that. And so I, I, I think that's probably, you know, it, it may be that's, you know, that's uh, more of the libertarian side of me than, than anything else. Uh, but I, I, that, that's probably the one that stands out. I, um, you know, other than that, I would, you know, I would say that, uh, uh, you know, there are only, you know, rats and mice issues and policy that you might occasionally raise an eyebrow to. I can't think of any off the top of my head, but, um, but that one certainly was the, the real standout. You mentioned the broad church of the Liberal Party and connecting the conservative ideology with the libertarian liberal ideology. It was tried and true. I think some people may suggest that that broad church is cracking somewhat and has been cracking since Howard. And then some people would argue that the rise of the Teals is a byproduct of the Liberal Party being unable to hold those two strands together. What does the Liberal Party need to do? Well, firstly, do you agree? And secondly, how do they try and keep those strands together in, in this day and age? Yeah, look, I, I think um, we have seen a natural fracturing of of the alliance over not just the last five years, I think, but probably the last 25 in many ways. I mean, I think this goes back even to the Howard era. I mean, you, you know, people, let's say, I mean, people like Pauline Hanson were originally liberal, so was Clive Palmer. And we have seen a natural uh, flow, I think, of some of those portions of the Liberal Party that you would expect. I mean, I think that's probably political, politically predictable that when you do have a, effectively a coalition, that's what it was. I mean, Robert Menzies effectively made the Liberal Party from a disparate bunch of differing conservative and liberal forces and brought them all together. And, uh, and it really was a coalition of its own form in a sense. So I think it's pretty natural that you would see that kind of um, that kind of flaring, and of course you would expect that out of a party that 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 values individual freedom and and values the individual rather than a collective force. I mean I, I look over at the Labor Party all the time, and I know there are people sitting in those ranks that disagree. I mean I know it as a fact with with a lot of what they do, particularly as that party drifts to the left, and and so the Labor Party has pushed out all of those you know those old DLP style. Well, most of them, I shouldn't say all of them, but most of them, um, you know, labour types from the right, and so it's a natural thing. In a, you know, politics is a is an evolving sort of thing. Whether that that explains the teals, I mean, I think that's probably more of a, um, you know, that's probably more of an economic argument. I think I think there are parts of the community now that have that have done very very well, that are very successful, that are very wealthy, and perhaps see the the brand of the Liberal Party in a manner that I I, I wouldn't. I mean, I think our future is in, you know, more of a, a traditional um, a suburban and, you know, almost even a working class, you know, phenomenon. And and we see that in the US as well, of course. You know, the Republican Party now in 2023 and probably since 2016 is now really probably a, a more effective voice for the working man than than the Democrats, which are more of an inner city, city voice now could ever hope to be. So, you know, I, these things are evolving. It's staring ahead of the curve is the trick in politics, and and I, uh, you know, I don't claim to be any great political scientist, but I don't I don't think that we are going to win the next election by appealing to solely the wealthy uh, inner city trendies and elites. We 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 win elections 
when we speak to middle Australia. We did it in 2019. The demographics haven't changed that much either, Will. I mean, that's just a, a fact. What, what changed, I think, was that we unfortunately drifted from that message. A couple more questions on the Liberal Party specifically. Do you think it has a problem with women? No, no, absolutely not. No, I don't, I don't believe that for a minute. I, I don't. I mean, you know, you take South Australia, for an example, I don't really even, the only time I ever hear that is when there's a pre-selection and, and uh, you know, one, one side's got a, a, a female candidate and the other one doesn't. And then, you know, the role super reverse. I, I, don't, I don't see it at all. I, 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 in fact, you know, particularly here in SA, it's at state level, I think we've pre-selected of the last, if I get this right, the last five or four upper house pre-selections, all bar one, have been women. And that, and that hasn't happened because, you know, we've gone looking for women. We've gone because we've had really good ones. And there are more to come, by the way. We've got some absolutely incredible conservative, genuine liberals, you know, like people that actually share our values, some of them who are relatively recently involved. Um, like there's a sort of a, a movement around some parts of the West, this kind of mama bear movement with, with women that are tired and fed up with having to watch their daughters play against blokes in sport. Uh, that kind of concept. And um, some of them are just doing incredible things politically. And, you know, watch this space. I, I don't think there's a problem in the first place, by the way. But, um, you know, I think that's an easy angle to exploit politically uh, in a cynical manner if you want to. So I, I assume of that answer you would be against formal quotas for women in the Liberal Party? Without even batting an eyelid, I, I, I will oppose that until I'm, uh, until I'm uh, six feet under, which hopefully isn't soon. <laughs> Let's turn to your ambitions before you are eventually six feet under. Do you want to lead the Liberal Party one day? To, to lead it? To lead it. Uh, look, no, look I, I, I have no aspirations to do that, I've got to tell you. I, 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 one thing, it's very hard to do that from the upper house. And, and, and secondly, I, 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 just don't think, I just don't think that that would be a natural fit. I, 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 I enjoy... The sport of politics and you know trying to push through the political landscape you know and that's what doing the sort of things that, that we're doing out of this office does uh, I, there's a need for people who who provide a counterweight and i see my role as being speaking about issues trying to get some publicity onto them and you know trying to get the political landscape back to where it was with a centre-right you know, approach not only in the Liberal Party but in Australia as well. That, that, if I can do that, then I'm I'm very very happy. I'll, I'll leave the uh, fronting up to Radio National to someone with a better temperament than I. Oh, well, it was worth a crack anyway. <laughs> um, you, you you mentioned you mentioned the your role, and then you also mentioned the upper house there, and it, it makes me think about the Senate and and I guess improving politics in Australia more more generally. So I look at the Senate and I see well, it used to be a legitimate. House of Review. So I think, for example, I, I go back to the role the Democrats played at their best. I think they were a positive third force in Australian politics. I think they generally, at least at the start, did play that keep the bastards honest role quite well. I think if you look at that incarnation of the Senate and then you compare it to the Senate today, which is comprised of on the crossbench rogues and special interest groups, I think it's a very, very different. The Senate is playing a very different role than it used to. Do you think the Senate does more harm than good today? Oh, that's a great question. I, I uh, look, I I don't think it's doing more harm. Uh, the question, I guess, is whether or not it's providing its role uh, as a House of Review. I mean, one thing I would say about that is it, it is increasingly difficult to do that when a lot of these, you know, legislative uh, uh, instruments are being railroaded through. You know, I, I think it, the Senate is at its best when it 
when it sits back, it gets its committees working, its standing committees uh, like uh, legal and constitutional affairs like I sit on and people are given a good opportunity to really debate them. And I will say I, the committee structures generally are pretty collegiate. So I think a lot of that work does get done effectively uh, behind those closed doors where there are no cameras and people don't have to grandstand and everyone's looking for their, you know, for their five minutes of fame. But it, it's wholly dependent on what the electoral cycle throws up, isn't it? So at the moment, we've got far too many Greens. You know, there are, I think, 11. And I, what I would like to be able to do, and I don't think it's going to make much difference on your podcast, Will, because I think everyone's going to agree with me, but I would love to be able to con- con- convey to the Australian public that when they vote Green, they're not not really voting for environmentalists anymore. That, that, that is, I mean, maybe that's part of what they do now, but it's, it's become so much more. I, I think if you look back to the Bob Brown Greens, uh, people like that, and you look to the current model, you're seeing a very different set of ethoses. Uh, and that's, you know, you'd expect things evolve. Um, it, it does always seem, though, that those of us that draw a line in the sand for conservative values uh, tend to get, uh, you know, called names where those who are pushing in the opposite direction tend to get treated like heroes. What does that tell you about the media cycle? Well, that's a whole different topic and, you know, we'll get to that one day. But so I, I, I don't, I, look, I think you're right. I think they're, the Senate works well when there, when there is, you know, and I don't say this from the Liberal Party's point of view because, you know, obviously I'd like to see the ability to move things through from our side routinely. But I, I think it does work well when there are less you know, numbers there in the middle. And and that certainly, I mean, what we're seeing at the moment is Labor and the Greens just governing without much oversight, frankly. That's my view. Yeah, it's interesting. You, you mentioned Bob Brown there. I saw a, hadn't even thought of Bob Brown in years, and I saw a tweet the other day of a photo of him off in the forest somewhere, and I thought, you know, oh, I would love to have Bob Brown back in, in the kind of Greens leadership role. He's a heck of a lot better than what we have now. Yeah. And I think it, it makes me think of a broader point here, and that is, I would argue that the talent of politicians across the board in Australia, probably across the board in the Western world, is much lower than it was in the Hawke Keating Howard years. Would you agree? And and if so, why or why not? Look, I, I think one of the problems I think we have faced, I, I, don't, I just I can't judge that. I don't know. I know what you mean. I think it's hard to judge when you're getting older because when I was, uh, you know, in my 20s, I looked at people that were in the Senate and in the House of Reps and they were adults, you know, and and, and now I'm that age and I, I can't judge people. So it's very hard to be able to give that any kind of scientific cred, I've got to say. But one thing I can say is I am worried about the political professionalism we're seeing in politics. And, and I'm not the only one, by the way. And when I say <clears throat> political professionalism, I mean the the amount of people that either don't know anything else other than politics or people that have never done anything else other than politics. And, you know, we, we used to, from my side, used to laugh at the ALP, the Australian Labor Party, for simply running union, you know, delegates and organisers through to a, to a minister's office and then into parliament, and that's all they knew. And Bob Hawke talked about it. He, he actually talked about what a, what, a, what a blight that was before he died. You know, only not that long ago, sort of five, six years ago, he made that statement. But the problem is that, that, you know, there are times, not always, I think we have less of it, but there are times when the other side of politics, my side of politics, does the same thing. Uh, and that's a problem, right? And John Howard said the same thing. He, he not, not at a dissimilar time to Bob Hawke, made the same observation that we need people that have life experience and we need people that aren't necessarily just career politicians in parliament. I think that's that's a bit of a feature of the last 25, 30 years, and I, and I think it's really unhelpful. I, one of the things that I have been trying to do, um, and you, you'd get a varying degree of uh, 
<laughs> of views on it, uh, but he's trying to bring uh, real people, you know, people with everyday experience and liberals, people that believe in the values and will stand for them back into the South Australian division. We've been doing it very successfully and it's starting to give us a new, new wave, I think a new generation of really good people coming into parliament in the upper house, because of course, you know, we've, we've you know, th- things just uh, move, move as they do through the election cycle. But so I think that's probably the most important thing in parliament at the moment is, 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 is a, uh, you know, and I take the example just to touch on that point. If you're um, a young liberal staffer and you, you know, you decide that you're interested in politics and you, you go and work for an MP and then you get involved in the party and then you stand for parliament and you're a very good MP. And I think there are lots of examples of that. That's not a bad thing. That's, that's a good thing. But when that's almost everybody, and I'm not saying that is at the moment, but I'm saying if you get to a critical mass, when all you've got in parliament are people who, who know nothing more than, than politics, it, it becomes hard to speak out. It becomes hard to speak with fear of, you know, without fear or favour, because uh, what do you do if you get rolled at an election? You, you, all you know is politics. So I think that is stamp. That is at least a, a significant portion of uh, what we have to be careful of. I, I want to be clear. I, I don't think that's happened. I don't think we've reached a danger point with that, but I, I think we've got to be aware of it. The Liberal Party works best when we're bringing people in who've got real life experience, and that's been our strength. Military people, doctors, small business owners, mums that have been, you know, stay-at-home mums that just get elected as well. Everyone brings their own perspective, and that's, I think, where we, um, where we, where we strive for our best. Mm. Okay. Well, we've solved the uh, the problems, immediate problems for Australian politics. Let's zoom out to the some of the hot button issues of of the day. I will start with everyone's favourite question of politicians in twenty twenty three. How do you define a woman? <laughs> Yeah, well, I don't have too much problem. It's an adult human female, um, and I I didn't, I didn't think that'd be a particularly difficult no, one for you. I, I won't go away and come back to you either, Will, um, <laughs> as seems to be the case. And I, I feel bad. I mean, I poor old Professor Murphy. I know, I know he didn't want to do that at that estimates hearing. I, I and I didn't mean to. You know, it wasn't. But I, it does show the point that these, you know, these bureaucracies now are stifling people from telling you know what they believe, and because there's a weight of People behind the senior bureaucrats, I think, that may disagree with them. So there's a, there's a few problems there, but ultimately, isn't doesn't that just highlight the point? The fact that that's become, you know, a, a sort of a, a global question, and everyone's getting asked it now. I mean, that that's that's hard to imagine five years ago. Yeah, it is. Well, you so you you went on record and you talked about the the rallies in Victoria. Um, I'll quote: You said last week a group of brave women in Victoria gathered to protest men using their bathrooms and dominating their sports. The activist media and leftist political hacks of this nation described it as an ugly, evil, harmful political gathering, never even seeking to distinguish between the nitwits who turned up in black from the genuine female protesters. I agree. At the same time, your fellow Liberals, technically at least, have expelled Maura Deeming for being one of those brave women. What was your reaction to her expulsion? Well, I, I don't understand it. I mean, I, I don't understand how it got to that point, and I'm very sad about it because I, I don't know Moira well, but I've met her once, I think, and I found her to be very genuine and very engaging and very principled, by the way. I mean, we talk about having a problem with women, and all I've seen of Moira Deeming is that she's a strong voice for women's issues and she somehow seems to have found herself on the outer with the Victorian division now I mean you know these are speaking about other divisions from from your own division is a danger sport in politics and I, and I really don't want to tell the Victorian division anything they, they don't want to hear but I, I just don't see what she did wrong and I, I've said that publicly multiple of times 
and I think it's a real shame. I think she, you know, I think she she really does have a lot to offer. And I can't. I, I mean, if this is this is the standard now for, uh, and I know there were a few in, intervening. You know, I, this sort of cascaded like a lot of these things do. But the starting point was this. Uh, the original point of conjecture with with what happened was that she attended a women's rights rally that was gate crashed by neo Nazis. Um, now, if that's the standard that 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 we are up to, then I mean, every single union thug that turns up at an ALP show uh, is going to bring that that show and the people that attended into disrepute, and uh, that can't be right, can it? I mean, that just simply can't be right. No, it can't. And I, you, I think those facts are spot on. I know that you are, you are somewhat limited in what you can say. I'm certainly not. I think it was disgraceful, and you and and I think it was a very poor reflection on on the liberal brand. This is a separate but related question. How have we as a society gone from believe all women in the aftermath of the Me Too movement to ignoring the public assault uh, and abuse of women like? Kelly J. Keane in Melbourne and uh, and in Auckland and Riley Gaines almost overnight. How has that change happened in society? It's incredible, isn't it? It's a great point and, yeah, well made too, I must say, but I, I, it is absolutely staggering that we could. I, I, You know, I was thinking about it the other day. I was reflecting on the likes of Moira and Catherine Deves and people like that who, who have taken a strong stance on very reasonable issues in my view. And you really can draw a line, I think, back to the original suffragette movement where women were threatened in, in, you know, 100 years ago, more, uh, were threatened, were humiliated publicly, were, you know, shamed by their peers, uh, and, you know, really isolated politically in many respects, for views which are quite uncannily reasonable, probably then, but also now in many, in many cases, I mean, I don't profess to be a total historian on the suffragette movement. But you know, a lot of the stuff they were talking about was the right to vote, you know, the right to an equal vote. Now, I don't there wouldn't be too many people that would, uh, you know, would would uh, would bay about that anymore. But at the time, you know, these people were marginalised. It's hard not to draw a distinction between some of these brave women, and they are brave women today, to that movement of yesteryear. And um, so, I, look, how that's happened? Think, I don't know. I, I, things have moved very quickly in five years. The progressive movement has found its lane, and it is now on the warpath. And I keep saying. The long march through the institutions that the left have been on, it, it's not the march is not on anymore, right? These people are through, they're finished, they've taken their boots off and they're drinking whiskey, right? <laughs> so the conservatives start to understand that we, we are not the establishment anymore, right? We are no longer with the whip hand. We are up against it. So no more capitulation, right? That's not, I'm talking about politicians. I'm talking about everybody on the street. We all make excuses for, you know, things that we know are wrong. And, it, and it's not just politics. It's also getting people back involved in the political process, in the media, in their business, at their local footy club. At, you know, we want people to be vocal about what they believe in um, to help us hold the line. Well, one media institution that is vocal about what it believes in and won't tolerate that sort of stuff is The Spectator Australia, covering <laughs> all the hot button Australian politics issues. Uh, and we will give you uh, a wider view of the converging social, economic, and military crises the West is facing at the moment. Sign up for a digital subscription today for $16.99 a month with one month free at spectator.com.au forward slash join. Alex, in that plug, I stole a quote of yours. Uh, okay. You have you have indeed said we are <laughs> living just, through. I was just thinking how, how very learned you were during that program. <laughs> That's right. I don't have a problem uh, appropriating good material. 
you have said we're living through converging social, economic, and military crises, and you've also said the West is to blame for its own demise. Can you expand on that? Yeah, look, I, I think what I was talking about there was the uh, you know the situation we're finding ourselves in now uh, you know, globally. Let's say, I mean, we've got a you know I think what will be a very um, studied period where it, I think that the the, the 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 alliance between China and Russia and others. Uh, the so-called BRICS alliance, as a, as a starting point, is now starting to gain serious global economic and military traction, which is a real worry for the West. And you know, we're seeing a change. We're seeing a shift in in the global political sphere, where uh, the US is not, uh, you know, our, our, our greatest ally. The US is no longer unassailable at the top of the tree. You know, there's there are real question marks over the US dollar being the standard. There's real questions over the military in the US. Uh, and whether it keeps its mantle as the number one for long, I mean, it still is, but how long does that last? There's, there's some real watershed stuff going on at the moment. And all the meantime, we are distracted by the voice and by you know gender politics and whatever. Now, the question has to be, you know, how, how long do we continue to you know get distracted by this stuff while the rig game is playing on? And you see that in, in, in Canberra all the time. We walk in and we're talking about, we're navel gazing, if you like, at, at, at sort of, and we have to. I mean, it's you know domestic political arena. We have to do that. But there's some serious stuff happening out there on the geopolitical stage, and you know I I, I think that that people need to start to understand that. And uh, and we're 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 in a precarious position in many respects in that sense. And and our you know our, our generations ahead would thank us for being more more aware of it. Well, a very big piece of that geopolitical puzzle is China. You've been very forthright in calling China an enemy of Australia. What should Australia's foreign policy with regard to China look like? Oh, well, that's a, that's a massive, uh, massive question, I suppose. I mean, I guess we, uh, you know, depends on the view you take. I mean, we, we, we should be trading with the world and I don't have a problem with that. I don't think anyone has. But I think, you know, I think we saw what happened post-COVID when, when China decided it didn't like what we were saying about COVID and um, it just turned the switches off. And I, I think and I believe that that Many Australian businesses are now pivoting towards other markets and and looking to sort of you know bulletproof our future from a trade point of view. But obviously, we need to be trading with everyone. And uh, but yeah, look, I I I I don't know. I think we um, you know we have to accept that. I don't believe the, the CCP is not um, you know, and we have to say this. I mean, we're not talking about the Chinese people who are very good people. Um, we are talking about. Uh, the, the ruling elites, the, the Chinese Communist Party, who I, I don't believe have Australia's best interests at heart. And uh, everything we do on a foreign policy level needs to bear that in mind. I'm sure it does in many respects. I'm, I'm not suggesting it doesn't. But, you know, ultimately, that regime is not our friend. How likely do you think a conflict is between the US and China in the next 10 years? Look, I think on a personal level, I think it's almost inevitable on some some level. I mean, you couldn't put a crystal ball down and work out what it looked like. Does it look like a flashpoint in Taiwan? Does it look like something else? But, you know, history would show that a rising power and a, and a, and a sort of a, a diminishing power ultimately do uh, come to blows at some point. I, I just think it's inevitable. We know China's got designs on Taiwan. What it actually looks like, I mean, uh, you know, we, we, we don't know, but I uh, I think, look, my gut feeling is it'll be sooner than that. I think we'll, we'll see it in the next five. Do you think Australia is militarily ready to support the US if that sort of eventuality does occur? Well, I mean, whether or not we're ready, I don't know that we'd ever be really ready for that kind of 
warfare, would we? I'm no military expert by any stretch, but um, um, look, I, I, I don't know. I think a lot of this good work was done in the last term of government where we did see uh, the coalition and our current leader, Peter Dutton, doing doing some really good things in order to, uh, you know, the AUKUS deal for starters, which which is going to have a big big impact. But h- how could you ever be ready for, you know, a, uh, a a genuine battle with a superpower? We, we are only ever going to be a piece in that puzzle. I, I think the most worrying thing is how the US is ready for that. And we know at the moment they're, um, you know, they're, they're, their military is stretched already with the war in Ukraine, ammunition's low. And, uh, and so, uh, you know, there are some problems there, I think. And and I hope they can sort them out because a lot, a lot's riding on it. Mm. We we have a few more minutes, but I want to get on the topic of China. I want to get your thoughts on this, and that is, you've spoken at length about the danger of a CCP-style social credit system. For listeners who may not be across it, what does that look like, and why is it a risk for Australians? I uh, will. I mean, the social credit system, I think, is uh, is a massive problem. I, I, I think we're creeping towards it every single day at the moment, and, and COVID really showed that. Um, so what, what we're talking about when we say a social credit style system, is, I'm sure most of your listeners are aware of this, but in in China at the moment, if you uh, if, if you are a, a you know just a regular citizen and uh, you, for example, get a, a speeding camera fine, or you know you're seen jaywalking, or you know, you simply make, miss a payment on your, um, you know, your mortgage. Potentially, that's tracked in many cases, and your social credit score will drop. Uh, and if it drops too low, you can be excluded from services. So there are stories about people incurring the wrath of the regime uh, and then being shut out from uh, being able to buy a train ticket or a plane ticket. Uh, and we saw that um, famously with the the, the bank in China that. Um, that 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 uh, went under, and I think there was one particular province. I forget where it was, but uh, when people descended upon that town in order to actually physically get their cash out, um, the uh, the government simply put up a uh, uh, you know a sort of a red cross on their COVID travel passports, and people simply couldn't couldn't travel. So we saw the beginnings of this under COVID. Here um, we had uh, you know all sorts of um, early warning signs about a social credit system. Um, the, the most, you know, notable one that I, I remember was the QR codes, of course, which which was a which was a big deal. But you know, there were even little things. South Australia had a home quarantine app where if you had been directed home to quarantine for COVID, which is all a bit of a distant memory, and we can't let it be a distant memory, but it is, you would uh, potentially uh, be allowed in certain circumstances to download this app and to use it as almost a form of you know home detention, where you'd get prompted. Uh, three or four times a day by the app, and you'd be required to take a photo of yourself, which would then use the GPS data, send that information back to South Australian Police and SA Health. And if it all correlated and you were where you said you were, you didn't get a knock on the door from the police. And if it wasn't, then and or you didn't answer, then you would get a knock on the door from the police and they would show up. And that was all in the name of COVID. So my my great fear is what does this look like at the next emergency, whatever that is? So do we see do we see climate emergencies where people can't use their, their digital currency because they are, um, say for example, uh, you know, looking to buy a tank of petrol or you know perhaps there's some limits put on the things you can buy at supermarkets. This technology is arising all around us, and um, you know, Australians would be wise to be very wary about this because I think it will happen. Alex, we're just about at time. Uh, my final question, we've talked about a lot of kind of different strands here and I, I want to pull it together. Are you optimistic 
about the future for Australia. And if you were to look at kind of this country and go, well, what's the one big ticket item that we need to be thinking about and potentially that we can change, what would that be for you? Um, look, I, I think in the long run, I, I am I am optimistic that people are starting to, you know, understand what you know what's been happening over the last few few years, and I, and I think people, you know, are going to need to wake up a little bit more about some of the stuff. I, problem with conservatives and everyday Aussies is everyone's out doing their things that they are meant to be doing, running businesses, taking kids to school. Everyone's busy, working jobs. I get it. Not everybody is afforded the luxury of thinking about politics all, all day like I do. So. You know that that is a very real thing. I do think that we are in for some difficult times in the next few years. I, I think the sort of spending we saw in this budget is a great example. I mean, I, I, I do feel as though we are going to have to go through a period of, uh, you know, sadly a period of uh, uh, of difficulty for Australia in order for people to shake off the nonsense of, say, let's say, climate alarmism, for example. I mean, and the best way, I'm not wishing this on anyone, but I think that the, the most likely way that will happen is as bills continue to rise, which they will. It's it's just almost beyond doubt. Beyond that, I, I am hopeful that, you know, we are going to start to see, you know, a return to sensible values in this country. But I do think there are genuine global pressures that are coming, uh, the ones we talked about with the sort of geopolitical forces. And I, I do worry that we are going to see a, a period of conflict in the next period. So, Look, beyond that, it's hard to say, but Aussies are pretty resilient. We've got to get back to finding that resilient streak. Um, we need to be more crocodile dundee and uh, <clears throat> less, uh, I've got to find a nice safe analogy here, uh, less, um, help me out, Will. <laughs> Lydia Thorpe came to mind, but you may not be oh, able well, to say that. <laughs> uh, less something else, I don't know, anyway. But, uh, you know, that that's what made this country work, really, there's that resilient, we've got to find the larrikins again as well, you know, like, I think Aussie, one of the things I'm really sick of is, is Aussies being told they can't laugh at anything anymore. You know, no one's, no one's laughing at stuff out of malice. This kind of nonsense about microaggressions and subliminal racism and all this nonsense, like we, we, don't, we want to be like that. We want to get back to what we used to be. I could speak about that topic with you for another few hours, but your chief of staff is on my case. So we will save that one for the next podcast. I recommend everyone follows Alex on social media. The links are in the show notes. Uh, you can stay up to date with how he's thinking about the issues of the day. Alex, thank you very much for coming on Australiana. Will, thanks very much for having me and keep up the great work. Thank you very much for listening to this episode of Australiana. If you enjoyed the show, please leave us a rating and a review. And if you really enjoyed the show, head to spectator.com.au forward slash join. Sign up for a digital subscription today and you'll get your first month absolutely free.